This is the second Sunday of Advent, and what I thought I'd do is do a little review of what I said last week about the themes of the season, and then to preach on the reading from Baruch, which was particularly well read today by Dan Hood, and to say something about Baruch, and about the reading from Philippians, and then the Gospel which introduces uh, another of the Advent themes uh, that are important for us and maybe some inside baseball about this so that we can understand it. There, uh, Advent, Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means coming. And so in the liturgical calendar as this developed, uh, this season had something to do with the celebration of the coming of Jesus in his birth, and also a season about the second coming of Christ and what that might mean. And so we, we, I try to always think about how we appropriate something like that in our own day. And it's not for me hard to understand the coming of the birth of Jesus and the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And uh, But the other idea of the coming again, I've been talking about this a lot lately. In the Bible, it says that uh, Jesus is going to come again. And I don't know when that's going to happen. And Luke, uh, our patron in his gospel, see, seem, believes that uh, it's important for the church to have come into being. And uh, somehow it has a purpose and a meaning in the divine economy. So when we think about coming, it also may mean that some of the Advent themes will come into our hearts and minds as we continue for the next three weeks or so for the Advent season, how we understand what that means. So the four major themes are, of course, repentance, which I'll talk about today, hope, and I mentioned last week, honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm, expectation, Making the effective use of your imagination in all of the, what, imagining what might be or what could be uh, in your life. It's an important, important thing to think about. I don't mean the sort of phantasmagorical imaginings that most of us have a lot, but it's possible to have some sort of forward vision about how you understand what might come, what might be. And finally, joy, which is the, the view in the Christian sense, in the theological sense, that the conundrums and the ambiguities and the difficulties and the uncertainties of life uh, can and will come into sure and clearer focus if we cooperate with the divine initiative that's been begun in each of us through our baptism, that that's an important thing. I don't know how that happens, but I notice, have noticed that in people's lives, uh, they will, in their anecdotal reporting uh, to me as a pastor for a long time, they've said, well, since I've done these things, it's uh, things have become a little more manageable. You know, things that loomed large still loom, but maybe a little less large than they used to, because I have internally been able to uh, touch the things or to tend to the duties of state is the old-fashioned word that all of us uh, are called to do, to pay attention. Last week, one of the great themes in the right biblical readings was pay attention, 
be attentive. And that's an important thing in the cultivation of the spiritual life. Look for the signs. You know, it's part of how we do this in terms of looking at our own habits and behavior, but also the relational life that we're in the midst of and how we think about the larger picture. Also, remember, I'm going to talk about Baruch now. Remember in the ancient Near East, when Baruch was written, I'll say a little bit about this, uh, nobody first thought about I or me. That was not first. What was first was we, the collective, all of us together, the people. All right? Now, of course, human beings have a tendency to screw things up. And so when we begin to think about our people, instead of it being merely a sort of uh, idea of, of community and harmony and so forth, it becomes uh, an issue of our people and those people. We're very sorely tempted right now to get into this badly. Those people, things that have happened. You know, Nancy and I are news junkies, and we have been watching this, of course, avidly, way to the point of finally saying, I think we better turn this off and do something else. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's all kinds of conflicting information. You know, we heard, for example, there were 355 uh, uh, mass killings in this country last year. That may not be true. It depends on how you define what it means. Who's saying this kind of thing? Not the people that you would notice as the usual suspects, but the Pew Research Institute. So they're not a bad outfit. So we need to be able to sort through some of this. Nonetheless, it is very interesting. I was in Lunardi's. I'm just prolonging this. I was in Lunardi's last week, and I was shopping. And uh, there was uh, an old person like me who was being accompanied by somebody or some sort of a helping person or somebody who was helping her shop. And the woman who was helping her was dressed as a Muslim. She had a full skirt on. She had the head, whatever, the, whatever it's called. And she had this on. And I, I turned like this. And she looked at me. And it was like, are you, are you looking at me with, with some sense of opprobrium you know I, you know it's kind of am I being looked at because I'm like this and I I, I, I wasn't but I got to, I thought about it later that you know how would it, how would it be if you were dressed like that and walking around yeah. here in the in Los Gatos California you know so it's an interesting thing Baruch Baruch was Jeremiah's secretary. We're not talking about Bernard Baruch. You know. <laughs> How do you make money in the stock market? <laughs> Mr. Baruch, I would like to know you've been so successful. What is it that you have done? Buy low and sell high. There was a New Yorker cartoon about 25 years ago of a guy who'd labored up. It looked like he was in the Himalayas. And there was a holy man sitting on a precipice in the mountain in the lotus position with a beard and so on like this. And he looked at this guy who'd come up and he said to him, do you think if I actually knew what the Tao would close in at the end of this year, I'd be sitting on this mountain? <laughs> 
Anyway, Baruch uh, is the person, th this comes from what Episcopalians and other traditions that have been influenced by the Reformation call the Apocrypha. But in Roman the Roman Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, these books are interlarded into the Old Testament. They're not a separate section. Now, most Protestant Bibles do not even have the Apocrypha in it. We do because we read the Apocrypha from time to time, and it says we read it for edification, but not for doctrine. I read it for doctrine, too. I don't care what anybody says about that. <laughs> you know why they said that? Is because in Maccabees it talks about taking up a collection to pray for the dead. That was anathema, right? So anyway, though, Baruch is... is th this probably was not written by Baruch. He was Jeremiah's secretary. But it dates much later than Baruch and Jeremiah who went off to Egypt during the exile and died there in all probability. So this is about, this is giving attribution to somebody in order to give prestige to what is being said. Nobody thought in the ancient Near East that doing that was a moral lapse. Nobody thought it was a moral lapse to say Baruch wrote this. All right? Because it's important. And what he's talking about is a theme that will be spoken of in the gospel for today when it talks about the valleys being made, raised up and the mountains being laid low and our path is going to be smooth. There's an allusion to that. What is it? Isaiah 40, where we hear about the valleys made and John the Baptist is going to speak about that. But what Baruch is speaking about now, or the community is saying, we're now returning from the exile in Babylon. We're coming back to Jerusalem. I'm going to be able to stand on the hills in Jerusalem and look at the view and begin to see the possibility, the expectation that we have for the restoration that is going to take place. And it's important for us because in Advent, we have made a, in a high relief the idea that for the people who lived at the time of Jesus believed a couple of things at least. One was that the exile, the return from exile hadn't been completed, that there's always the possibility for restoration and reconciliation. And we as Christian people believe that we have seen this personified in Jesus. And so we have now the hope that we're going to be able to reconstitute ourselves as a people with a clearer and better vision than we had before. That that's a possibility. And we've seen that in this person. Whether it is true or no makes no difference. I hate to sound this extreme. The people who wrote the New Testament believed that Jesus was revealed on every page of the Hebrew Bible. You know... When Isaiah talked about, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, they said, Psh, that's Mary having Jesus. Isaiah had no idea about who Jesus was going to be. Right? But they read that text and said, You know, if we'd have paid attention, we'd have been able to, able to see this more clearly. That's what John the Baptist is doing. We're looking at our literature, our sacred literature, and the tradition that revolved around it, and we're looking back and saying, yep, in him we have seen now that God's saving embrace is for everyone, not just the people of the covenant.
It's for, for those people, too, not just our people. So Baruch is giving us kind of a hopeful, an uplift in the reading. Philippians, I'm not going to talk about a lot, but it's, Philippians is probably one of, if not the healthiest of the congregations that Paul uh, began in Philippi. Remember that Philippi was a big city. It was, there were 40,000 people living there. And it, it, it provides me the opportunity to say to you something that's important. Christianity began as an urban movement. Wayne Meeks, the first urban Christians. It wasn't a backwater hip deal that came. Jesus came from a kind of a backwater, (laughs) to be sure. But those who believed his message were from big places. And they began to create communities who who believed in his messiahship and believed in what he taught about all people are in and that we're one community. What did the Philippians do that d- deserve Paul's praise? One thing is, is that they gave him money for his ministry. They helped him, and he's grateful for that. But they also agreed to give him money from a collection that they took up to help the Jerusalem church, which he had promised to do. And we read about it. In the, he's, he, he brings a, a collection that he's got from, the, from these congregations that he founded. And he was to bring it to Jerusalem because he wanted that sense of connection, you know. The biblical witness, of course, like all things, gives us a picture sometimes of more smoothness and harmony than probably was really the case. Because I suspect in the ancient Near East and with the early Christians, it's just like institutional Christianity today, and that's like it's herding cats. <laughs> right? People would like to say it isn't, it's something else, but it isn't. It's like herding cats. So it's better to say, you know, we just, that's what it's like, and as the result of that, some of these cats can do some pretty good work and have done some pretty good work. So Paul is thanking the Philippians. It wasn't as difficult uh, dealing with the Philippians as it was the Corinthians. Some biblical scholars say that Philippians is about two or three letters in one letter we have now put together in the, in the New Testament. So it, it gives us an idea that there was an exchange of correspondence Always remember, too, that when you listen, read the letters of Paul, you have to, I was taught this in seminary, you have to remember that it's like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. You know? You don't know what the other person said on the other end. So Paul is responding uh, to what he's heard and how he thinks uh, uh, it ought to go. So we get to the gospel, and today the gospel is our old friend, John, don't sing Jingle Bells to me. When I was a young priest at St. Michael's in Tucson, Arizona, there was a side chapel. We had two, one for the Blessed Virgin Mary and one for John the Baptist. And there was a great little statue from Mexico that Father Fowler got that had him in in the... you know, skins and standing there looking a little bedraggled. 
and so on. And so when he would preach during Advent sometimes, he was, the pulpit was close enough and the chapel was right over there and he'd point to it and say, try singing Jingle Bells to that guy. <laughs> right? He wasn't buying it. So what, what do, how do we understand? Here's how Luke understands this. Uh, we're reading the introduction and there's a whole lot in here about the geography or about who was in the Roman imperial system, who was in charge. And uh, Luke is making his attempt uh, to write some history. And he's known as the historian of the Gospels. And uh, he is of, of the view uh, that history has been transformed as the result of the mighty works of Jesus Christ. So we're living now in new time. We're living in the time of salvation. And as I mentioned earlier, we're also believing that the, the church is part of the plan of God to come for it to come into being. So he's talking about this with the longer view than, say, Mark, who's expecting a week from Tuesday, the second coming. Okay? And so John the Baptist comes, and for Luke, John the Baptist represents... First of all, let me say this. I think for the early Christians, John the Baptist was something of an embarrassment. They may have been related, John the Baptist and Jesus. The fact that Jesus came and was baptized by John may suggest that he was part of John's group, right? But we also know from the biblical witness that Jesus' ministry took a left turn after he got baptized, and his focus was more on the kingdom of God than it was on the necessity for repentance. But when I prepared the sermon this week, I read something very interesting, and it, it sort of makes sense to me. John Calvin said that, uh, that we must notice when we read this in Luke's Gospel that repentance is not the pre-existent condition we must be in for all of this to occur. But rather, because of the Christ event and the proclamation of the coming of Jesus, and the effect that it had on the first church, it moves people to repentance. So how I think about that may have something to do with the fact that once you have come to the idea that God's unconditional love, forgiveness, and acceptance has been extended to you, it causes the individual person to do the kind of soul-searching that they need to do in order to conform more closely to what they believe has been given to them. It is the natural response of the human person to look at your life in a new way, to turn around. And remember there are two words in the New Testament for this. Metanoia, which is the one used mostly, which means to turn around and to look at things in a new way. And epistrophe, which means the same thing except that in the origins of the word, it has to do with its effect on our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, such that we go through an internal change, not merely a desire to change our behavior as a sort of external thing, but something that comes out of the person, from the heart. And also remember that in the ancient Near East, for Jesus, the heart and for all of his followers and all the people who came before, the heart was also the seat of the intellect. 
So that sort of connects to what Edwin Friedman talks about when he says thinking and feeling are simultaneous. You know? He was I feel like pancakes. <laughs> right? Long time ago somebody told me there's five things you can feel. These are the five feelings. Mad, glad, sad, excited, scared. That's those are feelings. Okay? Mad, sad, glad, excited, scared, anxious. You know, so I think or I feel that I'm don't do that so much. I'm a baby boomer and we got into this in the 60s that we had to talk endlessly about how we were feeling for God's sake. And what we were doing is thinking because it's going on at the same time. The mahout on the, on the elephant, right? The <coughs> elephant's all that underneath stuff, mad, glad, sad, excited, scared. And the mahout is on there saying, here's how we're going to try to deal with. And sometimes the mahout can't do anything because the elephant is going to go where it's going to go. No matter what the hook or whatever he has, he's going to go there. He's going to go over there. If that's true, you've got to go. Right? So how much are you and I the slave of the passions? David Hume, the great Scottish philosopher, said, reason is and can be nothing else but the slave of the passions. It's very much, it's very much poo-pooed today among academic philosophers, but he might have something. So, John the Baptist is summing up for Luke all that came before in terms of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He embodies and draws up in himself all of the things that the prophets of Israel have said. And he quotes from Isaiah 40 about the hills being made low and the valleys being filled up. And so we see the connection from the first reading to the reading of the gospel. And then he says we need to repent. We need to look at our life in a new way. So here's how I think about it. Here's Advent. We're coming up to Christmas. In the wider culture, in our own culture, in ourselves, we also begin to think about new beginnings. New beginnings in Advent. I've got some new beginnings I'm facing in my life. You know? And we think about what that might mean. And one of the things that we do culturally or we talk about is... New Year's resolutions. Some sort of a resolve about a lot of things. I say this and do not make too many New Year's resolutions. Make some if you need to, you know. I think that's an important thing to do. Ignatius Loyola in the spiritual exercises and in the Ignatian method of prayer, which I've found very compelling in my ministry in life is that once you do this this process of thinking and meditating, what you do is what they call, he calls make an election. You elect. Now, in the big spiritual exercises, the thirty-day exercises, probably the main thing they hope for people in certain conditions who do that is you'll become a Jesuit. <laughs> After the 30 days, you make an election to be part of the Society of Jesus. 
But the why, reason why people who aren't Jesuits, who aren't even Roman Catholics, they think to themselves, you know, this is something I can do. I can, on a daily basis, I can make an election. I can make a decision what to do. So maybe some of the great and grand things that we think about uh, as we come into new beginnings is an important thing. And John the Baptist uh, talks about that to some degree. So John the Baptist is speaking about this species of return from exile, from restoration and reconciliation, and his belief that in Jesus he has seen that to be so. So I would say this week, uh, think about the Advent season as a time for the proclamation that a lost, alienated, irredeemable humanity can be reconciled and restored and that that can be made real in our common life as a people, us, and personally in our individual lives. And that as we cooperate with God's purposes, uh, we are the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love we're called to be. Amen. Amen.